Hey guys, it's Dawn. If you would like to hear the How My Parents Raised Me podcast ad-free, and if you would like access to subscriber-only episodes, join me in the What's the Truth community. You can join via the Apple Podcast app. There's a link right there in the app. Or go to whatsthetruth.supercast.com. Links are in the show notes. Don't miss out on all the extra content I'm sharing. I can't wait to see you over there. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I was ostracized from that family from that moment on. I mean, it was, you were cut. That was it. That was it. I was the liar and a disgrace to the family. And, but from my end, the abuse had stopped. He had refused to step foot in the house. And so now for the first time in 13 years, I had a safe sanctuary that he was never going to enter. And so that was a victory for me. Welcome to How My Parents Raised Me. I'm Dawn Chitty. When we are born, we arrive here as pure and perfect souls. And the direction our life takes from that moment is deeply connected to what our parents bring to our lives. And what our parents bring to our lives is deeply connected to what their parents brought to their lives. And that's the cycle of families. I have always craved connection with real and raw stories to understand what makes you, you. What makes you the absolutely unique human that you are. Stories are medicine for the soul. They can connect us and they can change the world. And so in this podcast, I'm listening to beautiful souls sharing their story. What happened to them, how they got through and how they have healed and thrived despite everything to arrive right here in this moment. Content warning, if you are triggered by the themes of this podcast, please seek a helpline 
in your city. Hello, my beautiful friends. Welcome to the podcast. Connecting in with your intuition is a huge part of your healing journey because as children, we were taught to stop using our intuition. We were taught to follow rules, direction, never listen to your feelings or needs and keep pleasing the people around you. Tuning into your intuition is about coming back to the truth of who you are, listening to what you really want and need, tapping into what brings you joy and getting back in touch with who you really are. My blog post, How to Tap Into Your Intuition, is out now on the Heal blog. That's at my website, howmyparentsraiseme.com. Go to my website, you'll find all of my blog posts there and podcast episodes. There is a link to this blog post in the show notes. If you don't listen to another story this year, you must hear Beck's story. Beck's childhood was complete chaos. Her parents split when she was six years old and her mother and three siblings were sent to live with their paternal grandfather. On that day, Beck left behind toys, fun and childhood. This place was like a cult. Nobody had any rights. There were multiple other women and children living in the house. There was only school, chores and punishments. And Beck's mother was disconnected, disassociated and absent emotionally. When her mother finally left this situation years later and moved Beck and her siblings into her maternal grandparents' home, things continued in chaos. Because Beck had been sexually abused by her paternal grandfather in that house, and astonishingly, the maternal grandfather that she had loved and trusted also began sexually abusing her. This story references this abuse, but we do not go into detail because this is not the story of Beck's abusive grandfathers. This is the story of an incredible, resilient, and yet highly traumatized little girl who grew into a young woman who decided she would never let that abuse define her. Beck has been through hell and suffered through years and years of mental unwellness, culminating in debilitating blackout panic attacks. And yet here she is, the author of an incredible book called Chasing Normal, which details exactly that, Beck's journey of living through hell and then fighting like hell to find her way back through to the other side. And it is nothing short of total inspiration. Beck and I spoke at length and so I have broken this chat up into two parts. This first part details Beck's childhood story and next week we hear Beck's journey as an adult, her debilitating panic attacks and how she never gave up the quest to live a normal life. Please join me now for Beck's story. Beck Thompson, welcome to the podcast. You are the author of a book called Chasing Normal, which is your raw and honest account of how abuse and neglect affected every single day of your life growing up. It is a record of the enormous effort, determination and courage it took you to work through the chronic anxiety depression and panic attacks that you suffered for years as a result of your childhood as you chased a normal life. You describe your life as fairly normal up until the age of six. 
what happened when you were six years old? Well, it was relatively normal, as as normal as as I guess looking back now in comparison. But it that you know it was a fairly typical life. You know, mum and dad. Dad was the breadwinner. Mum stayed at home and and looked after the kids. And you know, we got to play and roam around the streets. You know, it was kind of in that era in Melbourne when you could, you know, you could play out until the light, the street lights went on, and you know, we just we just mingled with the other kids in the street. It was it was pretty simple, but it was fun and and you know, I really enjoyed it. There was just a point where my parents separated. I didn't obviously being six, I didn't I didn't know the extent of of the separation that it was actually going straight to divorce. Now it's just really interesting. I always find it interesting to say that because I'm one of four, my my father didn't think that my mum could handle being a single mum on her own and so typically with separation what I understand is that you just go and you know you go off on your own and you set up house with the kids and the father or whoever's got custody but in this situation it was it was decided for my mum that we should move into his father's house my paternal grandfather and he already had uh, five or six other women in the house and nine other children so it was yeah it was just a decision that was made for her which I find extraordinary and you know it really was a case of my life changing completely overnight so you know where I had books and toys and bikes Uh, we moved into a house where there was absolutely none of that. Uh, You wouldn't even know that there were children in this house and and all up with, with, with the four of us, there was 13. So it was just a very sterile environment and there was no sign of play. And so, you know, chores were a daily thing. And it was strict routine, uh, pretty much from the from the time I opened my eyes in the morning to the time I went to bed, there was uh, an order and routine in place. So there was absolutely no play. There was no TV. There may have been minimal chances to chat, but it had to be on the down low. It had to be secret. You just couldn't be seen to be slacking off. And there was just a lot of abuse across all forms so you know the the chores had to be done in such a standard that if they weren't done you were beaten or you were isolated or you had food taken away and we were already on a very strict no sugar um, barely any meat diet so um, in the few photos I have at that age I look very skinny and there was certainly no snacking. So there was just, and there was just a lot of beatings for anything, really. It was just folding the towel the wrong way or not even, you know, not being happy to do a job, which I often wasn't. And unfortunately, I just showed that, you know, I, I was disgruntled when I had to rake leaves on a very windy day in Melbourne. Someone was watching me and, you know, I was dragged in by my neck and beaten. And, you know, it was just, it was just a very cruel living situation. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's absolutely bizarre really, isn't it? Mm -hmm. That you find yourself in this place. And when I read your story, it just, it, I mean, it sounded like a cult really. That, that's the feeling that I got this sort of very sterile environment where 
you were just there to do jobs almost. And yeah, it was very cult-like. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's, I, I probably don't always describe it like that on record, but I do, it is. I mean, it, there was definitely a hierarchy. You know, my grandfather thought he was the Messiah. So everything that he he ordained to us below him was from the word of God. So, and you dare not argue with that. I mean, as a six-year-old, you're not going to argue with that. And, you know, it was to the point that you had to cleanse your thoughts. So, you know, because they drummed into us that someone was always watching. There's always someone watching. You've got to be perfect. You've got to be right. You've got to be just. I mean, I was doing testimonies as a six-year-old in a in in the little built church in the house of all the sins I'd done. And and there was not much to do other than the chores. So it was always just about improving myself. I had to improve myself. And there was no leeway or room for error because you just you were supposed to get it right and and not even know that you weren't doing it right until it was met with punishment. So, you know, it was a very difficult situation to to live in, really. Oh, God, yeah. And and that whole thing of your thoughts. It's like there's no escape from there's no escape from control when even your thoughts are controlled, right? I mean, yeah. It's um, a horrible place to be for for a kid. Yeah, and I think you just learn that, I mean, I, I can see why, you know, when I down the track sort of developed chronic anxiety because you're just constantly thinking I've got to do better, I've got to be better. Something's, you know, someone's watching. Even if I can't see it, someone's always there judging me and, you know, you feel like a prisoner in your own head because you've kind of got this battle. I think in my book I called it The Beast and it was just this beast dominating and watching my every move. And, you know, you've got to do this right. And why can't you do that right? And why can't you be a good mum? And, you know, you're always sort of 20 steps ahead in your life, you know, because you've got to be able to predict an outcome of something you haven't done yet. Yeah. So, um, yeah. 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 And who were the five other adult women in the house? Did you know who they were? Well, I don't ever remember meeting them. My 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 grandfather remarried, so I guess she was officially my step grandmother. But I it was never that relationship. And the other women, I I guess they they just most of them had children to him. So it was I think it was kind of a Mormon situation, from what I understand. And so she was the 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 wife, and the others were just the ones he he had children with he didn't have children with all of them but I don't recall knowing them in any in any way before I moved in and and like I said there was absolutely no relationship you know I I not certainly not like my actual grandmother the, his first wife nothing like that so mm-hmm. it was very isolating in that regard because as soon as I moved into the house I wasn't allowed to even speak to my mother so we could you know be like passing ships in the night and and I just, she wasn't allowed to speak to me. I wasn't allowed to speak to her. So, you know, birthdays were ignored. Christmas wasn't even on the radar. But they'd often bring her in. So if I was particularly naughty, whatever that meant to them, and I wasn't obedient in that in that moment, they would resort to getting my mum to beat me without any purpose she had no idea. She was just told, 
come in and start beating her. And yeah, and I think that was just their last resort of psychological abuse of, okay, what do we have to do to rein this girl in? Because nothing's working. And you because you clocked so much, so many beatings, you got used to that and you learnt the tricks of the trade to try and get it done. Because if you faulted with your hand, they kept going. So you had to kind of play the routine of making sure your hands went in that rhythmic pattern. So if they missed, you were in trouble. So I guess it was just a last resort for them to, yeah, like I said, just rein me in and make sure I was doing as I was told. Wow. And so how confusing is it to have your mother in the house and you just don't have access to her? I mean, you've gone from a normal, relatively normal childhood to living in a house where your mum's there, but you can't communicate with her. I mean, it's it's so abandoning, isn't it? And then you're getting beaten on top of that. Yeah, look, I do remember. I remember the first time, the first morning I woke up and, and we were all marched into the to the kitchen to have our breakfast in the orderly fashion that we had to have it in. And I remember seeing my mum at the at the sink and I looked to her to say hello and all she did was pop me a glance and she kind of winced a smile and looked away. And I remember thinking, oh, have I done something wrong? It was literally an overnight thing where it was just she was someone I knew, but no longer. It was very much a severed attachment. And I just had to, yeah, I mean, I I, I do remember there was a, I think it was a story in my book that I, I obviously did something wrong again. <laughs> They made me sleep on a, there was a concrete floor where I, where my bedroom, so there's no carpeting or nice flooring. It was just bare concrete. And I remember they made my mum come and put newspaper down for me to sleep on the floor. And I remember screaming out to my mum to stop and, you know, please don't let me sleep on the floor like this. You know, please don't leave me, mum. And they had intercoms all around the house. So... She knew that if she did anything, that she would also get beaten as well. So she just had to keep walking. And I I do remember that was probably the second, beyond the first morning, that was the second moment, I think, that's very clear to me that I had no one. I, I just knew I could not go to my mother for anything. And you just had to, yeah, you just had to survive, I guess. Yeah. yeah. And it is survival, isn't it? But I just wonder... Your mum must have been suffering some sort of mental health issues or something. I mean, to to allow herself and her children to be treated this way. I know many women are very um, powerless, but do you think there were mental health issues there? Oh, oh, that's a, definitely another podcast there. Look, I obviously, as you get older, you you start to see where the patterns emerge and it doesn't start with you. And I just, unfortunately, it's a history of my mother being dominated her entire life. From the moment she was born, she she was born with epilepsy. Uh, also, that's what we were told. But, and she's always been, she was always treated as someone who couldn't do anything. And she, unfortunately, she put her power or gave her power, even as a mother, as a person to her father and and her mother so and and in this situation it was the same thing she gave her power away uh, I mean you and I would know as mothers that it they'd have to walk over my dead body to do that stuff to my kids 
but unfortunately my mum just gave her power away and, and didn't have it for a long well she's never had it essentially and that's something that you do have to process obviously because I was also you know sexually abused in the house as well and you know even the questions of how I even got to the bedroom you know as a as a young child and and her sort of thinking that you know we were just playing in the bed and well when is that ever appropriate for you to be in bed with your grandfather it's just not Mm. appropriate and no situation like that would be appropriate so I I usually I tend to think my mum's someone who's been abused herself and is also developmentally stunted. Uh, I just think she's had an extraordinary amount of trauma uh, and it's not an excuse, but that's how trauma plays out. Often we repeat the patterns and yeah, she just she's just never stood up and you know most likely never ever will but at the same time as I decided many many years ago I had to do what was right for me and I had to process that because I knew that my life I had to live my life and I wasn't taking it with me you know I wasn't taking that stuff with me and I had to learn to deal with that and process that and understand that it really didn't start with me and it wasn't you know, as hard as it is, and it's hard, you know, when you when you think people are reading this, what a mother actually allowed for her children to happen, it's hard. That That's really difficult for people to go, what, what sort of a mother does that? And it's not an excuse, but it, that's, I find that's the reality of, of trauma. That's, that's how it can be, unfortunately. And it's just a decision to go, well, okay, this was never about me. It, it happened to me, but it, it wasn't you know, I don't believe it was ever intentional. It's just, it's hard to fathom. I think as a mother myself, it is, mm. it never would never happen in my watch, but yeah. Oh yeah. And that's a beautiful understanding that you have of that because I mean, the trauma is extreme and the fact that your mum just wasn't able to be there in any way, shape or form. I mean, so many people would, would not be able to get past that or over that because it it is massively letting us down isn't it I mean they are the people who are supposed to care for us the most and when they're not there it's totally life-changing for us you mentioned then about your grandfather and he started sexually abusing you how terrifying was that experience well, again, it was just, I think it was just one of those things that you were marched in and, you know, I mean, depending on how, I mean, obviously don't want to be too graphic about it, but you you were scrubbed down and, and marched in and just expected to do what was asked of you. I was essentially being taught how to please my grandfather when I was six and a half years old and no concept of you know, I just remember being in a fetal position thinking, where's my mum? I couldn't, you know, and I, and I guess now as we know all the trauma responses, it's that immobility, that's that frozen response of I can't move. And very early on learning to disassociate and, and go inward or outward and focus on something else in my room in the room I was in until you sort of got the the shake up to to get up and, and get out and and then I was just marched back to bed, you know, and that was it. And and 
you know, that was it was just the order of the day and 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 I mean it's sick, you know, you think it's so sick because you were chosen and it was almost a reward. You know, if you were the lucky girl chosen, then you had been a good girl all week. So maybe that's why I wanted to get into <laughs> I actually never thought of it that way before, but maybe maybe that's why. I don't know. But yeah, I, I don't know. It's it's extraordinary. I, I don't know. I just think, yeah, it's it's hard to kind of and the, you know, there were adults present. So, you know, like we were the trainees and I and I just again, these were mothers. Mm-hmm. And you just think, what in what planet is this okay? Yeah. You know, that yeah. Well, these these women were obviously fairly brainwashed by your grandfather. I mean, he's, you know, on some sort of weird power kick or whatever he's doing. But but the fact that you go into a fetal position and you focus on something in the room, it's incredible how a tiny little girl figures out how to get through something so traumatic, isn't it? Because it's yeah. it's just survival and and there's literally not one person who's standing for you in that situation you you're just so alone aren't you yeah, yeah. and i think that was that's even perplexing to a young child that's because you're thrown into this situation that you you know instinctively is not normal and i'd never been exposed to this before and all of a sudden this is this is normal this is what we do and this is what we are doing so and 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 it is that kind of kind of mismatch between well you know because you start to think was what i was living for 6 years a dream and is this now reality is this normal obviously moving on to my my other grandfather where he began abusing me as well you start to go right so I am the property of someone else. Like there's other people involved in my body that I don't have a choice over. Because again, with adults around, you you how do you question it? Well, you know, if you challenge it, it's like, well, maybe I'm the one who's got it all wrong, you know, because it happens, it keeps happening and no one's saying anything. So maybe this is normal. And the first six years were just some kind of weird abnormality. <laughs> Yeah, but but we do like we do know intuitively somehow, don't we, that this is not normal. Like we we can feel it in our bodies, even even when sexual abuse happens over years. I mean, I think we still, as humans, feel deeply intuitively this is not right. And yeah. but your yeah. brain is a six year old or a seven year old or, or whatever, mm. just trying to figure it all out. I mean, it's it's so confusing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Yeah. And so how did you finally escape this house? Well, it was probably one of my mum's best decisions she ever made. And that's one I am going to give her credit for. I mean, I think she probably thought of herself initially, which is fine. But no, she because she copped a lot of beatings herself and, and being in the hierarchy, she was right at the bottom. I mean, still above the children, but right at the bottom of the adults pecking order. So she got all the laborious jobs, all the crap jobs, all the shit jobs. And she was pretty much just bossed around everywhere. And I don't know, it was weird. One day she, she you know, because 
we all sort of had a like a leading person in front of us and the lady that was kind of in charge of her just asked her to do something that was normal every day of what she normally did I think she was folding the laundry or something and and my mum just kind of went no I'm not doing that and I remember I was there I was probably folding laundry too when you have 22 people in the house there's a lot of laundry and and she the her her boss was was a little bit stunned and she sort of she started taking her food away because that was obviously my mum's punishment because my mum was has always struggled with weight and she didn't care she said well that's fine take it away and and of course once she'd run out of all these threats she had nowhere else to go and so she said to my mum, just go and sit down at the gate and have a think about yourself. And, you know, I think the devil must be in you or something and you need to, you know. So she did. She went out and she sat down at the gate. And one of the kids, the older kids, actually walked down, sat with her for a few minutes and she got up and she left. And I thought, oh, yeah, she'll walk around the block and come back. But she didn't come back. So she left, I think it was for two weeks. And I think even in that time, my grandfather had managed to get us in a, her kids in a room and say, now your mum's left. She's going to come back and try and get you. You need to say no. You need to say that you belong here. You want to stay here. And I mean, in the inside, I still remember that day on the inside, I'm like bubbling going, oh my God, this is my out. This is my out because I had tried to escape the house unsuccessfully. And so we, I was, you know, of course we said, of course we'll stay. You know, of course this is our home. And you come, oh, they told us to pick another mother. I'm thinking that was ironic given I hadn't oh been God. given a uh, anyway and so yeah I was at school one day and I was just taken out of my classroom into the staff room and there was my mum with two police officers and probably a few other staff members and the question was posed would you like to go home with your mum and I just remember wanting to scream yes 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 I want to leave yes I was so dripped in fear because of what was said to me, you need to stay. You need, if you ask those words, you say no. And I think I said something like, I, I want to go, but I'm not allowed to. And the saving grace was that because my grandfather did not have custody of us, and my father certainly didn't want custody of us, he had no legal right to keep us. So we we left. That was it. So yeah, it was just packed away and didn't get to say goodbye to my teacher or anything. We just packed into the car and and that was it. But her parents came and picked us up because she didn't have a driver's license. So Wow. Wow. What a relief though in that moment to think as you're driving off in the car, it must have been totally surreal to be heading off to or well, just anywhere else. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Off to- a new life somewhere else and and start again with nothing but the clothes on our backs so and and to re you know re-familiarize myself again with my grandparents my other grandparents who I hadn't seen in three years so it was it was weird it was a weird day actually yeah Mm -hmm. and so what did you notice when you left the house in the next few weeks like it must have been like almost like Christmas just kind of getting back to a normal life in a way well it was uh, again it was it was kind of similar in a way to waking up in the in the the house that I'd been in for three years again it was waking up and this time it was not knowing what my parameters were because it was a new environment and even though I had 
faint memories of being at my grandparents' house before I moved into my paternal grandfather's house. I, you know, it was three years of living under strict, rigid control. So, you know, you didn't move unless you were told to move and you did not eat unless you were told you could eat and you did not go to the toilet unless you asked to go to the toilet. So everything was so strictly regulated that I, you know, and so waking up, it was, what do I do? Where do I go? I could see the dining table there, but am I allowed to sit down? And what's going to happen if I just assume I can sit down? And I think it was my grandmother that said, you know, good morning, Rebecca, would you like some breakfast? Yeah. Am I, you know. Is it a trap? Yeah. Do I need to do a job? Aren't I supposed to be, you know, cleaning the skirting Mm. right now? So it was, it was, it was good, obviously, but it was, it was still very frightening because I didn't know. There was so much anxiety with not knowing. You know, I had to constantly predict for three years what my, what my next step was going to, what outcome that was going to be. So for this new situation, I couldn't trust that that was not going to happen again certainly not the control and the beatings and the chores and, and play. I mean, what's that? I can rope? Oh, well, what can I do? So, yeah, it was it was still very hard learning learning what I could do and being a child again and growing my hair and what wearing clothes that I like. I mean, what is that? I had to wear a uniform in the other house and I didn't get, I didn't see a shop. I didn't see a retail shop in three years, a supermarket. <laughs> so, yeah, it was it was good, but it was it was also extremely difficult as well. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Oh, yeah. Wow. It's your nervous system. I mean, it's it's shot to pieces, isn't it, really, hmm. by your experience? You would have been in fight, flight, freeze and just on high alert, not knowing what hmm. you could and couldn't do. Well, it's reintegrating back into a different social norm, I guess, because you just 
yeah, you just don't know. And I think because, you know, my mother never really, I guess, made it any easier. And I don't, again, I don't think it was intentional. Maybe, you know, obviously she's also grappling with the fact that she's just left an abusive situation herself. But there was no kind of, I don't know, I don't, I don't believe she told her parents what we'd been through. So there was just no opportunities to, you know, well, get any help for starters. And, and you know, this is back in the 80s, so, you know, probably wasn't even a done thing. You just get on with it. Mm. But there was no easing into, it's okay. It's okay, Rebecca. I know what you've been through. And, you know, it's very scary. There was no conversations to kind of go, you know, this is an adjustment. This is going to be hard. So, again, you're just, you're just navigating your your parameters, your life again, and it just feels like this one continuation of going, who do I look to? Who mm. Who's going to be there to help me navigate? It's hard enough for a regular 9, 10-year-old to navigate their lives, let alone from the position I guess I was coming from. So, yeah. Absolutely. And did you feel that you were able to connect in with your mum after you moved? I mean, was there a a change in your relationship at all? I think I, I think obviously you tried. I I certainly, I think I tried. I, yeah, I mean, it was because she hadn't been a mother for for three years. There's a lot of trust that's gone Mm. because I knew that she knew things. I knew she knew what went on in that house. I also knew that she'd beaten me for no reason multiple times. So there was always that clear evidence that you are not going to stand up, like you're going to walk away and let me sleep on a concrete floor. So that's hard to kind of ignore that and then just waltz in back into some connected, attached, secure relationship and again, as I said, because she didn't make those try and make those repairs, yeah, it was it was very difficult. I think I probably did try. I know there was one situation I had an accident three days into starting at a new primary school. Uh, my fingers got crushed on one of these <laughs> concrete uh, pipe as a play equipment. It was country school, and I remember I was in so much pain. And even though they give me some Panadol, my fingers were throbbing. And so my mum actually said, come and sleep in my bed with me and I'll keep an eye on you. But it was, I took the opportunity because I guess there was an opening for comfort, but it was also so terrifying. I just, I couldn't sleep because I was so afraid someone was going to come in and start this whole abusive tirade again where I was going to be exposed to something I didn't want. And I, so I never took the opportunity for that because it was just, it just brought back too much and it reminded me too much of what I'd been doing for three, for three years. Well, the, yeah. tr- the trust is totally gone, hasn't it? It's very hard. And especially if, as you say, your mum wasn't actively trying to make any kind of amends or bring that trust back into your relationship it's very difficult to feel any kind of trust towards somebody that's abandoned you in that way yeah absolutely yeah yeah and so I mean horrifically as you mentioned before the abuse that you had experienced with your paternal grandfather now began with your grandfather Mm. in this home is that right yeah so 
I guess as mm. the walls sort of started to come down and the familiarity of my grandparents and connecting to what that relationship was like before I moved into the house and I didn't see them or speak to them for those three years, certainly with my grandmother, it was it felt good to be around her because of all those memories I had. And she really did make that effort. But it, yeah, it was, it, I just remember the day sitting on my grandfather's knee and he just started to sort of pretend he was tickling and then he'd start going underneath my top and I'm thinking, okay, what's going on here? And, and he'd do it. But the thing was he did it in the kitchen dining area while my grandmother was cooking and, you know, he'd, he'd hold my arms in so I couldn't move and I couldn't push his arms away or he'd take me into another room and let me play on a computer because, you know, it was 1987 and who had a computer? That was a pretty special reward. So he would use sort of those tactics to either isolate me or, or do it in plain sight, pretending that he was just playing. Yeah, and I guess I just... I don't know, it's a pretty hard thing to kind of take in that, okay, here I am again. And my grandfather, who's meant to be my grandfather and someone that I have a special relationship with, is once again tarnished so that, you know, I'm there for your pleasure once again. And, yeah, I I don't know, that, that one probably hurt the most because I did have a relationship with him prior and I did have those memories of staying at his house and, yeah, I don't know, it, it, it kind of reads out in a fortunate sequence of events really, but mm. unfortunately I was just, you know, I've got parents who absolutely idolised their fathers, so I had no chance, basically. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and it is such a betrayal, isn't it? Like mm. you say, I mean... Your grandparents, you you can really get a connection with with a grandparent that's quite different to a parent. You know, there's yeah. a, that generational gap, and then for that grandparent to betray you in that way, did you ever just want to stand in the middle of the the lounge room and just scream out and say something? I mean, or were you just so? Did you just feel so voiceless? Well, both. I certainly would have loved to have. You know, there were certainly times where I'm sitting on my grandfather's knee looking at my grandmother and wishing she could see what he was doing to me and wishing I could tell her what he was doing to me. But, but you know, when we talk about kids and their instincts, I'd also watch the dynamics of my mother around her parents and, again, listening to every word they say, believing in everything that they say, using them as the the authority over everyone and everything and he was a policeman so you know he was a retired policeman and of course my mum had that five-year-old mentality that said police don't do wrong things they're good people and I knew that I was not going to be believed even back then and until it came up when I was 13 I knew I knew that she would not believe me because daddy was her world and she believed everything mummy and daddy told her until the day he drew his last breath. She believed in everything her father did. And so as a child, you you actually can see the dynamics of how the, the relationships play out. Who's got the control? Who doesn't? Who's got the power? Who, you know, who's the manipulator? Who's the silent one? 
you know, kids aren't that silly. They pick up on those things. So that was very hard. Obviously, I couldn't have predicted, you know, the fallout from not being believed. But yeah, it is, it's a hard thing to see, understand. I don't know. But I think also because you kind of learn when you know your mum's not there for you, you kind of, you just know, okay, well, I'm on my own again. I'm not yeah. really going to have any chance here. Yeah, and I just want to acknowledge how freaking hard that must have been, both of your grandfathers abusing you in that way. It's almost like worse when you're sitting on your grandfather's lap and he's just doing that in front of your grandmother and and there's just nothing can escape you to scream out. It's It's just so hard, but... By the time you were a teen, you confided in a friend, didn't you? Yeah, because we we sort of moved around a few times, not but sort of never too far away from my grandparents and my mum relying on her parents for everything and she didn't have a driver's license, so to get around she heavily relied on them, but she she had told me when I was in year 8 that she found her forever home and it, of course it had to be in the same town as her parents she couldn't move away from them god forbid she gain any independence of her own and i knew i just i knew I, you know it was it was when i was 12 turning or 13 turning 14 and i was done with being abused i was done with being around him he just revolted me and, you know, all the things you go through as an adolescence, you're already very much aware of your body changing. And I just I couldn't be around that pervert. It just disgusted me. And I, I remember just the anxiety. And I did not know it as anxiety back then, but I just, my test was just so tight. And I remember telling a friend in the street that I was, that I was moving. And then I just kind of, it just kind of came out, you know, and Never in my life had I aired it to anyone and, you know, I asked her, please do not tell anyone, please do not say a word to anyone and, you know, I trusted that, you know, four, six weeks later or something, we move and there's a knock on the door and it was a, it was a uniformed cop on duty with a hat on and, and I, I knew that, that my abuse had been reported to the police and I just... Yeah, it was another one of those life-defining moments where I knew my life was going to change again. And yeah, so you know, it was it was kind of that sliding doors moment. She came, she came in, sat down, and I ran to my bedroom, <laughs> thinking that I could stay in there because I knew I knew that my mum wasn't going to believe me, and I didn't have a plan B of what's going to happen. What's going to happen from this moment when I actually hear my mum say no? that's not true but I also wanted to take the opportunity because it was asked of me and I you know it was sort of a it was a dual moment of going well maybe she might believe me if there's a cop sitting there because why would I do this to myself but I also wanted to use the coppers if she doesn't believe me there's someone there's someone there and I knew that it was it was the moment I, I had to use the opportunity and of course I did and yeah, it was completely shut down. There was absolutely no window of investigation from my mother. There was no shock. There was no dismay. There was no sadness. There was no grief. 
There was no, it was an emphatic and arrogant, no, my father would not do that. And that was it. And yeah, I guess, again, you, you just, what do you do? I was asked to make a, a report and I took the opportunity and I went into to the police station back in the day, I can't believe, 1991, typewriters. And they had to do a move for both grandfathers. And yeah, my, my mother just refused to be a part of it. Absolutely would not come in, would not just, no, it was not, enter, it was not entertained at all. That was, you're on your own. If you're going to do this, you're on your own. And in fact, when I was asked to press charges, I said no. And I said no, because I wanted it to end from my end, as in I wanted the abuse to stop. And as soon as he got word of, you know, because he had to come into the police station and answer for himself, and of course he denied it, but I was ostracised from that family from that moment on. I mean, it was, you were cut. That was it. That was it. I was the liar and a disgrace to the family. And, but from my end, the abuse had stopped. He had refused to step foot in the house. And so now... For the first time in 13 years, I had a safe sanctuary that he was never going to enter. And so that was a victory for me. But my mum kind of unbelievably said, well, if it was true, you would have pressed charges. But she didn't bother to go, well, what's this like for a 13-year-old to be cut off from her family again and forever? So, yeah, I, I just, I, I, like I said, it was a victory for me. But again, the, the the consequence of that was now you're on your own. Like you really, really are on your own. That's unbelievable. it. Unbelievable. It's yeah. unbelievable. I mean, you're and you were thirteen? Yep. 13. Uh, and and I mean, so so what actually happens to a thirteen year old who's ostracized from their family? Are you still living in the house? Well, I was offered foster care, but I I got a little bit just dis- I really did get a bit determined and stubborn, kind of like, actually, no, I'm not leaving because I've done nothing wrong. And I still had, because when we when we first moved away from the my paternal grandfather, I had made some friends in this little town because it was the school I went to. So we moved back five years later or something. So I kind of went, well, you know what? I've got my room. I've got this little town that I can wander around and escape. He's never coming in to this house again while I'm still here. So I thought, no, you're not going to get that satisfaction because this is still my home and you can hate me and you can spew all your vile words and smear campaign about me. But, hey, I'm not leaving because I, I don't want to. I don't want to go and be in a foster situation where I don't know anyone, at least mm. in the town. And I had my siblings, I had friends, I had school, and I had my room. <laughs> I kind of went, no, I'm not going anywhere. Wow. A little like defiance. It's, well, wow, I'm so glad you had defiance. I mean, it's, I just, it's just incredible. Like, you must have been... Like you must have just been living your life with these massive kind of walls around you by this stage because how do you how do you manage that? There's so much going on. There's so much emotion. Were you were you angry? Like how, what was the emotion? Look, I think, you know, my mum was an expert 
at emotional shutdown. And when you have that and you've learnt that and you've watched it for, you know, the last seven years at least, you learn to adopt those behaviours. You learn that, well, there's no there's no purpose to airing your emotions because no one's going to hear them. It's like screaming out into the forest and expecting someone to hear you. No one's going to listen to you. So there's a point where you just go, there, there is no point. I can't have an outburst because it's going to fall on deaf ears. I can't scream out for someone to care because no one's going to come. Mm. And so you do what is modelled and you go, it doesn't matter. And you just teach yourself, it doesn't matter. You don't matter. And like I said, that I think that the very next day, it was just like a regular day. I mean, you, we just didn't talk about it. It swept under the carpet. Yeah, and you just you learn that because what's the point otherwise? What, what do you do? There's yeah. no one to go to. And in that situation, I mean, it's a family who are just saving themselves from shame, isn't it? They're so <laughs> terrified of what the outside world is going to think of us as a family that they're happy to sacrifice a member of the family in order to save face is yep. pretty much what what they're doing isn't it and it's Absolutely. i mean true. it's generational and it's what families have been doing over generations but you know it's just yeah. it's so wrong yeah it's so wrong no allowance for any understanding of what it does to a child. You know, mm. there's, oh, well, let's just, that's a bad limb. Let's cut it off. Yeah. And nothing's going to grow there. We'll just move on with the other parts of the tree that are untouched and pretend it's still leafy and beautiful. Yeah. And how bizarre is that? I mean, I just, I can't even imagine living a life that way. You know, it's like a double life, isn't it? We know all these things have happened, but we're going to just deny, deny, deny. And so you're living at home. I mean, when did you finally escape? I wish I kind of had have escaped first and foremost and never come back. (laughs) But it didn't work out that way. Look, I used school was always my escape. I learned that right back from when I moved into my paternal grandfather's house, that school was my refuge, school was my place of safety, and teachers were my absolute only chance at nurture and care. So, you know, when it came to year 12, I didn't want to leave school. I I mean, my friends were so excited and I was terrified because, you know, I, I knew that once I was outside of those gates, I was on my own. I mean, I wasn't going to my mum for any advice. And I certainly wouldn't, but, and I wasn't ready to navigate life on my own. I was 17 and a half when I finished year 12. My friends were just so happy to take risks, you know, travel and move to Melbourne and get jobs or move. They were just so excited. And I couldn't, I I just didn't know how to do that without any grounding and any support, any, you know, parenting that, probably helped me, you know, to get to that point that most of my friends had. So I was fortunate enough to, well, fortunate, unfortunate, to meet a boyfriend a couple of months out of year 12. And so I kind of leaned on him and he just happened to live down the road from where I was in the 
down from my mum. So I kind of escaped there to, to, to his house a lot. And he introduced me to a lot of alcohol because he was 21 and I wasn't even 18. And, and that was, you know, proved to be a great escape for me mm. at the time. But yeah, I, I mean, I, I kind of, and then I moved down to Melbourne because I was trying to get this I was trying to get my life sorted, but I I really didn't have a clue. I, I didn't know what I wanted to be. I, I didn't even know who I was. I was, you know, disassociation, numbness, all of that was just, that was my game because that's what I had to do. So what are you good at? I don't know. What can you do? I don't know. I just did not know myself at all. So I moved to Melbourne, tried to put on this, oh, I, I'm going to get a job, I'm going to get a career. and But funnily enough, I, I knew it was a bit of a, a farce because I just refused to get in contact with my friends that had, most of them had moved to Melbourne because I knew I was faking it. I, I really knew I was faking it. I really knew I didn't. I was broke. I didn't have any money. I moved into some kind of women's accommodation because it was cheap and they were willing to take me in. But I just, I kind of kept going back to, funnily enough, to my mum's house because there was, you know, my mum was still very much a child and because I felt the responsibility for her for a long time. And even when the abuse came out and it was reported to the police and her parents were absolutely furious with her. And that was, you know, for a girl who idolised her daddy, but for him to be furious, she was like a little child. She wasn't coping. So I knew I'd be okay. So I was the one that stepped in and started mothering her from from really from that time on, making sure mum, you know, got up in the morning and she was okay, you know. You know, it sort of progressed from the point of helping her with her finances, teaching her about finances, teaching her how to keep her house clean and teaching her how to have a backbone with people. And no, you don't actually get to have to do that. There's a thing called boundaries, you know. So I kind of flipped the lid very early on and, and was was being her parent. And, you know, leaving her over the years, I would take on this enormous guilt. What's she going to do without me? How is she going to keep her house clean? How is she going to ensure she's got enough money this week? How do I, you know, and I, I sat there and made her a booklet of, of financial budgeting and what was I, 20 or something? What did I clue about that? But, you know, I knew that she relied on me. She never turned around and said, this is actually not your job. You know, I'm your mother. You, you're meant to be out there having a life and learning about life. So it was very difficult for me to actually leave permanently. So I went back and forth. You know, and I, I was, I used to say to her, I think my first teaching job was in Darwin. I said, I'm only a phone call away if you need me. Because I was, you know, I was terrified. She couldn't do life without me because I was so used to encouraging her and motivating her to lose weight and eat properly and don't spend all your money and get your license. Yeah. So it was difficult. It was difficult to escape. I did. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Mm. And and so at some point you must have just broken down though well, i mean the I, trauma always catches up with us doesn't it it does i think i mean the the first time i really ever broke away from my mum was when i was pregnant with my first child after i got married i do remember it just started to dawn on me hang on a minute 
I'm actually going to be a mother, you know, and this is my responsibility and this is my baby and I'm not going to leave this child to the wolves and let society raise it. It's my job. I'm actually going to be a mum and kind of dawned on me that I was the mum in the relationship with my own mother and I remember her ringing one day just out of the blue and I think I, I don't think she knew that I was pregnant. So I said, I actually just said to her, I'm actually pregnant. I'm going to be a mum and this, whatever this is with us needs to stop. So I said, I actually just need you to just leave me alone for a while, just because I the, the dynamics of our relationship has to change. I need to be here for my own child and you need to accept what's happened with your father and we need to be able to talk about this for our relationship to change. So when you're ready, call me. And she did not understand, obviously. And I just said, look, I've got to go. That's the terms of the relationship going forward. When you're ready, give me a call. And um, it took her three years. And I had two children in that time. And it didn't really change anything. She was really just, you know, saying the lip service, sorry, just to get back in. But yeah, you know, it it just had to change. And yeah. Yeah, you just have to had to change the dynamics and I knew it wasn't going to and it never really did, but at least this way I, I had the I could set the the ground rules for once and know that she was no longer my responsibility, that mm-hmm. I actually was an adult and I had to I had to be a I wanted to be a parent for my children. It, it really changed everything when I had my son. I just, you know, couldn't imagine allowing the stuff that my mum had allowed with me to to happen to my my son he was my world and I was his protector at all costs yeah absolutely this is the end of part one of Beck's story next week we hear about Beck's fight to wellness to get through the trauma there are some real lows and blackout debilitating panic attacks but through it all Beck never loses her determination to live a normal life. Please join me next week for part two of Beck's story. Thank you for being on this journey of healing and community with me. If you listen on Apple, I would love it if you could take a moment to post a review for the podcast. It would mean a lot. Check the show notes for all links recommended in this episode. If you're on Instagram, follow me at my big love project and please share this episode with someone you know needs to hear it. Thank you for joining me. You are such an incredible soul because you are you. You are unique. Your journey is unique and you can absolutely change the world with your story. Your time is precious and I so appreciate you being here. Thanks for joining me. I'll catch you next week.